0: Amen, and good morning. We're going to continue in the book of Philippians. We are in the the first paragraph of chapter 3, which spans verses 1 through 11. You might argue there's a couple paragraphs in there, but it's it's sort of one big unit of thought. And I had initially planned to preach this unit of thought in one sermon, and uh, that didn't happen. So I thought I'd get done in two, and that didn't happen. We may finish in three. But I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not either. Um, it's going to depend on how quickly I talk today and how quickly you listen. We might land the plane like halfway through the message and pick it up next week. So, uh, all that to say, if you could make your way to Philippians 3, that would be a good idea because that's where we're going to be this morning. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we. We give you praise that you have spoken, God, that you were not silent, uh, you didn't remain withdrawn or distant, you've told us everything we need to know for life and godliness and how to find those in knowing Christ. God, help us uh, to know you more today in the hearing of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, but we're going to really focus On verses 8 through 11 today. Before we read the text, let's be reminded of the context for just a moment. Paul is dismantling the arguments of people who are opposing the Christians in Philippi. All right, these are Judaizers, people saying you got to become a Jew in order to belong to the family of God. And the, the appeal of this argument for the Christians in Philippi is likely that it presents an opportunity to escape persecution that's on the rise in Philippi. All right, So they're they're arguing, hey, just come on over and be a Jew, and then you won't be persecuted. But Paul will have none of this because the hope and life we have in Christ is our foundation for belonging to Christ, and it's our foundation for facing opposition in the world. We're not to be surprised that we are opposed to In the world, in our life for Christ, and it is our pursuit, our foundation for pursuing unity in the church. So, these two issues, growing disunity in the church and pressure for following Christ in the world, both are met by the joy of knowing Christ and His way of life. How do you face opposition in the world for knowing Christ? Well, you got to know Christ. you got to know that He's better than whatever you might face for knowing Him. How do you pursue, pursue unity in the life of the church? Well, you realize it's all about Christ and His kingdom and His glory, not about me and my ways and my preferences. So Paul told us in verse 7 that he counts anything that he might have placed confidence in other than Jesus as loss. It's a big zero. In fact, it's less than zero. It's, it's detrimental. And now he's going to tell us why he could look at his pride and his achievements and his knowledge of the Old Testament and his keeping of the law and his being uh, circumscri- circumcised on the eighth day and being of the tribe of Benjamin and all those things we covered last week. Why are they lost? They're lost because knowing Christ is better. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In this text, Paul references Christ Jesus either by using His name or a pronoun nine times in four Verses. Paul is showing us the worthlessness of his status and his achievements next to Jesus. His seven aspects of status and achievement are nothing. They're not even close to knowing the one Lord Jesus Christ. Paul now sees everything that he was placing confidence in as loss compared to Christ. Silva says it this way. Paul is insisting that his previous achievements had yielded spiritual bankruptcy in his life. How do we come to count everything other than Christ as loss when it comes to standing before God? We've got to know Christ and we've got to pursue His way of life with our eye on eternity. And this all begins with having the right perspective about anything else that we might trust in. So in verse 8, we see that Paul is saying, in order to know Christ, we've got to forsake all other sources of salvation. Anything else that might say to us, hey, you can be saved by knowing this or doing this, it falls short of Christ. And we've got to forsake everything else through the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. In verse 8, Paul tells us about a transfer of treasure. He was quite, quite proud of his heritage and his Efforts until he met Jesus. In a moment, in encountering Christ, everything he once held dear, he suddenly counted as loss or literally to be lost. The, the word is, is to be, it's a form of is. In other words, everything I once had when I met Christ, it equaled loss, detriment. It was of no value. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing. Christ Jesus. Everything was lost because I encountered Christ. I own a midnight blue 1964 Chevelle Malibu. It is the first year that the Malibu was made by the Chevrolet Corporation. Sort of a precursor to the muscle cars. It's got a 283 small block engine and it needs some work. My dad and I have put some money into it over the years just to kind of keep it functional but much remains to be done to my 64 Chevelle Malibu and it's it's not a super sport for those of you who are car guys you know that the super sport has a larger engine it's got more speed more horsepower it's got four in the floor despite all the time and the effort and the money that we have put into my 1964 Chevelle Malibu, despite the fact that I can remember Mom taking me to soccer games and soccer practices in that car. Do you want to know what I would do if somebody came up to me and said, you know what, I want to take that Malibu off your hands and I want to give you a midnight blue 1964 Chevelle Malibu Super Sport with air condition and four in the floor in mint condition. You know what I'd do? I'd say deal faster than you could say Chevelle Malibu. It'd be a better car. And I would love it. And it would remind me of the car that it's got all the sentimental value. And I'd have fun driving that thing around here. You'd see me like, there goes Pastor Daniel. The word surpassing means to excel or to be superior when Paul sets his status and achievements next to knowing Jesus, he doesn't have anything worth hanging on to. Notice Paul doesn't merely say that Jesus is better than his status and achievements, that's certainly true, right? Jesus is certainly better. He's better and greater than anything else we could ever have. He's got infinitely more wealth than Musk and Bezos and Gates combined. He's got infinitely more knowledge than all the professors and teachers and tutors and instructors in every college and university and trade school and high school and elementary school and junior high school combined. He's got infinitely more power than all the energy emitted by the stars in the universe since the beginning of time combined. And more to our immediate point, Jesus, Jesus is God, and therefore he has the righteousness of God, so he's infinitely more righteous than we could ever be through our own status or achievement or effort. But it wouldn't do Paul very much good to just know these things about Jesus. He's got to know Jesus. He knows the surpassing greatness of Jesus, which doesn't mean they're about Jesus. It means of personal relationship with him. This word knowledge is the same word that's used of the relationship between a husband and a wife. There's an intimacy there. He knows Jesus. And it is excellent beyond compare. Paul literally says, it is through the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus that he counts everything else as loss. It's through knowing Christ that he takes seven points of pride and trades them for one thing, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Not the knowledge of himself, not the knowledge of his good deeds, not the knowledge that he's better than other people, the knowledge of Christ Jesus. In John 17, 3, the apostle writes, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul has discovered the true and abundant and eternal life that is found only in knowing Christ personally. It is belonging to Jesus in a way that you gladly follow Jesus as Lord. Do you see that? He says it in verse 8, for the surpassing knowledge of knowing who? Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not somebody's not Lord, not a Lord, not the Lord, my Lord. I, I, he knows him personally. Jesus is God. He's Yahweh. He's King. This is what is signified by the word Lord. And Paul trades a worthless boasting in himself for the lifelong pursuit of King Jesus. He's discovered there's nothing greater than knowing and enjoying and beholding and belonging to Jesus, the Christ, the promised King, the anointed and appointed King of the Father who would come to rescue all, who would trade the filthy rags Isaiah 64, 6 calls them of our self-righteousness and trade them for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul counts everything else he was boasting in as loss through the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Beloved, until someone really hears the gospel as good news, they will never count the things they think they already have and rely on as loss. It's terrifying to lose something that you're trusting in for the good life until you realize that Jesus is the door to the good life. When a self-righteous sinner encounters Christ in the hearing of the gospel and the Spirit opens his blind eyes to behold Jesus, his perspective like Paul's, is changed forevermore. I'm sharing the gospel with one of my cousins. Have been for some time and she sent me a note this morning. I sent her an article a couple of days ago. She finally read it. It was about a woman who used to be a Muslim and then she realized that that there was no hope in being uh, a follower or practicer of Islam and so she became an atheist. Everything's dead. There's no purpose and she lived her life like that. She trafficked in scholarly circles. She was friends and still is friends with Richard Dawkins and You know what? She realized there's no hope in that. It doesn't add up there either. And then she came to saving faith in Christ. She realized the truth is in the gospel. God opened her eyes to see that the gospel is not bad news, but good news. But first, she had to deal with the bad news of who she really is. When the gospel becomes good news, God is at work. We see that in what Paul says in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul did not count his status and achievements as loss and then keep them as a backup plan. Do you see that? He didn't just say they were lost, he really lost them. He lost the praise of other Jews. He lost being able to look down on those who were not Pharisees. He lost the illusion of being better than other people. He had to deal with the truth that people he respected and loved deeply were actually far from a God they thought they knew because they were rejecting Jesus, his son. How did Paul suffer the loss of these things? He met Jesus. In Jesus, he found an affection worth every affliction every cost, every pain, every trial, it was for Jesus' sake, verse 8, or literally through Jesus, that he lost his reliance on his stubborn pride and achievements. And by losing what he once considered everything, Paul gained Christ. He gained everything. Knowing Christ destroys our reliance on rival saviors. And it leads us to see that anything less than Jesus and his righteousness is rubbish. Do you see the word rubbish there in verse 8? Eight. This word rubbish comes as close to using a word that I used one time in my childhood and never used again after my mom washed my mouth out with soap. Do, do you know what Irish spring tastes like? I do. I don't like it. Rubbish. The Greek word is skubala. It was a term that sometimes referred to animal or human excrement. Everything I had compared to Christ, not only did I count it as loss, it was scuba. Merida and Chan say this the vulgarity of the term is intentional. Paul wants to awaken in us the reality of how worthless life is apart from Jesus. He's presenting us with this. Question, what do you prefer? Do you want the dung of religious self-effort and earthly praise and possessions? Or do you want the eternal joy of knowing Christ personally as your Savior and your Lord? Those are the choices. To gain Christ, God's got to take the rubbish of self justification and self righteousness out of our lives. In gaining Christ, Paul gladly gives up his own efforts toward becoming righteous through the works of the law. I've been a good person, I've tried hard. I've overcome so much. I've come from good people. I've helped people in need. None of these things can qualify us to stand before a holy God. And it is rubbish. It is scuba compared to knowing Christ, who alone can give us the righteousness required to know God. And it's this line of thinking that is in the back of Paul's mind as he runs into verse 9. It's not only that I count everything as lost, that I might gain Christ, but I want to be found in Christ, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own. The righteousness that was my own didn't do me any good, but there's a way that God can find me, not in myself, but in Christ, praise God, having a righteousness, not of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You want to know Christ this morning. You want to be able to stand before God on the day of judgment. You want to be able to know how it is that though you are a sinner, you can be redeemed and cleansed and stand before God with confidence. You've got to see Christ as the sole source of your righteousness. The sole source of your righteousness. So first, we've got to have the right perspective. And secondly... We've got to believe that God alone, through Christ alone, can give us justification or the ability to stand before God. In verse 8, we learn that people who know Christ Jesus see Him as superior to anything else they were trusting in for salvation before they knew Him. And in verse 9, Paul tells us why. Those who know Jesus are found in Him. It's in the passive voice. Who does the finding? God! God! God finds you in His Son, not in yourself, when you trust in Christ. When God looks at the Christian, He doesn't see you and your sin, He sees Jesus. And that is great news. Amen? Are y'all here this morning? I know you're all cold and sleepy. But that's good news, is it not? That when God looks at the sinner who's believed on Christ, he sees Christ... If you know Jesus, God sees you like Jesus and not like your sinful self. He sees you not in the first Adam who came from earth and sin, but the second Adam who came from heaven to take on humanity and live a perfect life and take the place of sinners. God does not find us in Christ because of any good in us. He doesn't find us in Christ because of any good we have done or might do or will do. He finds us in Christ Because the Spirit of God performs a miracle in the heart of the sinner who repents and believes in Christ. He supernaturally, the Spirit of God supernaturally unites us with Jesus in such a way that His life and His death and His resurrection become ours as well. This is how we are found in Him. God places us in His Son and in God's eyes we are as righteous as His Son. Marita and Chan say it this way, Christ received our punishment though he never sinned and we received his righteousness although as sinners we did not deserve it. Consequently, we are found in Christ. That means God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus and we can know we have forgiveness from God and are accepted by God. You believe that this morning? If you do, that that has Two implications for our lives. First, we should not be characterized by anxious worry about doing enough or being enough to gain eternal life. If you're in Christ, you've got eternal life because of Jesus. That should cancel your anxiety. It should cancel your striving to, to be enough, to earn enough. Jesus is enough. But it, it should also have another effect in our life. It should drive us away from any boasting confidence that it's about us. That, that we could do enough or earn enough to obligate God to accept us. Well, God, it was like sub-20 today, it was like 15 degrees this morning, and I came to church. Aren't you impressed with me? No, but he's awfully impressed with Jesus, and whom he finds you by faith. Silva says this, True righteousness... Is obtained by abandoning one's own efforts and exercising faith in Jesus. Knowing Christ Jesus means our confidence isn't in who we are or what we've done, but in who Jesus is and what he has done. It means we reject believing in ourselves because in beholding Christ, we've seen the wickedness within. Those who know Jesus understand and agree that no righteousness that we could earn or deserve could ever be good enough to bring us to God, who is the very definition of good. But praise God, He sees us not in ourselves, but in Jesus and like Jesus, if we really know Jesus. He finds us in Him. And that means, verse 9, do you see it? We have a righteousness not of our own. We do not have and keep on not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This is the only way a sinner can stand before God and live in Christ. As I referenced earlier, this is what the theologians call justification. The Bible term is justification. God credits all the righteousness that belongs to Jesus who is our who is God, He takes that and applies it to our spiritual account, and He handles the payment for our sin in Jesus through the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God the Father made Christ "...to be treated as sin, even though he himself never sinned, and in laying down his life as a substitute for the payment of sin, he became our substitute." That is, he took our sin on himself, and he bore God's wrath, and he took the punishment we deserve in our place. That's good news, but that's not all the good news, beloved. As important as it is that Jesus died for sinners, he also lived for sinners." How many of you have heard that justification means just as if I'd never sinned? Thanks for raising your hand. A few head nods. It it does mean that, but it means more than that. Jesus doesn't take us from negative to neutral. He takes us from negative to godly. He takes us not just from I'm a sinner to just as if I'd never sinned. He takes us another step all the way to just as if I had always obeyed. When God sees the one in Christ, it's like you never did anything wrong. Like there was nothing even for him to need to take care of. It's like you never had a sinful thought, deed, word or desire. God the Father sees you like that because that's who Jesus is. He doesn't just take your sin. He gives you his righteousness of perfection from birth to death on the cross that he did not deny or run away from because he lived for the glory of God even in the face of death. Nothing less than the perfection of God can qualify us to be with God. So God comes down and does for us what needs to be done. And God the Father in His courtroom declares through His Son that we have all the righteousness we would ever need to stand before Him. Those who trust in Jesus receive, do you see it in verse 9, righteousness from God. In the Greek, the word is of. It's, it's literally the righteousness of God. This, this little preposition is important because it means two things simultaneously. It means that God is the source of the righteousness and he's the giver of the righteousness that we need. It's God's righteousness and it's God's righteousness to give. This is why you can't be a Mormon and go to heaven. This is why you can't be a Jehovah's Witness and go to heaven. You're believing in the wrong Jesus. Because if Jesus isn't one with the Father, he can't reconcile you to the Father. If Jesus is not God, it's not God giving you his righteousness, it's God giving you someone else's righteousness. And if you get anybody's righteousness other than God's righteousness, it's less than God's righteousness. So you'll fall short of the perfection required of the Father and you will die and spend eternity in hell because you believed in the wrong Jesus. Jesus is God, and if Jesus isn't God, we're doomed, but Jesus is God in the flesh, giving us the righteousness of God by faith. We've got to have the righteousness whose source is God, which is given by God in order to belong to God. And this righteousness can be found in one place, in one person only, the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the externals of law-keeping, Paul was seen as blameless, but church, he was far from sinless. No amount of law-keeping could take away the sin in his heart. No amount of law-keeping could change his heart or give him peace with God. And by the way, peace with God is a twin reality, right? Peace with God is subjective and objective. Peace with God means when you stand before God in Christ, He does not condemn you. There is no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. He does not throw the guilty verdict at you. He doesn't hold it over your head. You are not condemned. You are at peace with the Father. But secondly, you feel that on the inside because God applies that truth to your life. Paul, as we all do, needed God's righteousness to know God. That righteousness is available today. Right standing with God belongs to anyone, no matter how wicked, no matter how vile they've been. It belongs to anyone who believes in Christ. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that hope of the gospel that the grocery store you walk into, anyone you encounter, they can go from death to life because of Jesus? Getting God's righteousness depends. Do you see that word depends in verse 9? It depends not on your works, not on your record, not on your rank, not on your background, not on your religious contributions, but on faith in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We're halfway through. Let's keep going. Does anybody need to stand up? Get a stretch break? If you hear that Jesus paid it all and you go, great, that means I don't have to do anything. There's a sense in which that's right, and there's a sense in which that could be a really big problem. Because you can't do anything to earn your salvation, but if you hear of this Savior who gave His life to give you life, and you're like, eh, no big deal, that might be a problem because What God has done for sinners who believe in Jesus should change you on the inside. And if you really know Jesus, if you have real saving faith in the finished work of Christ alone, you're going to want to live for Him. Does this make sense? So you can't earn your salvation, but if you've really been rescued by Jesus, then you're going to want to live for Jesus. Now you might, you might have to learn how to live for him, but nobody's going to have to convince you that it's a good idea to live for Jesus if you actually know Jesus. The one who really knows Jesus is going to say, whatever it takes to live for the one who gave me everything, who gave me right standing before God, sign me up. What do I need to do? What do I need to endure? How do I need to live? That's discipleship. Once you know Christ, once you encounter Christ, once you know He is your everything to stand before God, when that really happens by the Spirit uniting you with Jesus, the next question you're going to have is, what do I need to do? Not to get right with God, but because I'm right with God, how can I serve Him? How can I love Him? If you know Jesus, you're going to want to know not just that He stands in your place, you're going, want, you're going to want to know how you can stand for him right now. The one who lived and died and rose to give you the very righteousness of God. In verse 10, we see that we must, to know Christ in the now, not just to know what Christ did for us in the past, but to know him right now, we've got to pursue the life of Christ in the present. This is sanctification. It's becoming more like Jesus. Jesus. In verse 10, Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is not just about being seen by God as righteous based on what Jesus did back then. It's about knowing Jesus right now. It's about a real relationship with Him. Those who have God's pardon through faith in Jesus will experience His power in this present life to live as He lived in this present world. Fee says it like this. Because of the righteousness Christ has affected for His people, we know Him now. When we know Christ, there's supernatural union with Him in the present such that we know Him in our daily experience and we become like Him along the way. We forsake, we lose all efforts to justify ourselves, to gain Christ, to know Him. And knowing Him now means knowing, do you see it in verse 10? The power of His resurrection and sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. The goal of life for the Christian in the present Is not awards or accomplishments or accolades. You say, Well, I got a nice award at work. I I was chief in sales. Great. Right? Doesn't mean you don't ever get those things, but they're not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not health, wealth, or prosperity. Some Christians may have those things, but they aren't the goal. And do you want to know if you know Jesus or not? If you get health, How do you use your health for the glory of God and the good of the kingdom, the advance of the kingdom? If you have wealth, if you have prosperity, are you leveraging them for your king? Are you leveraging them only for yourself? A Christian's goal is to know Christ and to know him now. To know Christ now means walking in the power of his resurrection in the face of suffering for the glory of God and the good of his people. Paul's intimacy with Christ... His knowledge of Christ is expressed here as a paradox in verse 10. Do you see it? He experiences resurrection power. A holy, supernatural fortitude for today. Does anybody want resurrection power in your life? For sufferings, for challenges, for adversity? That's what God gives to the believer as he suffers for the sake of Christ and his gospel. The resurrection power allows him to persist through pain for the praise of God. It is this power, divine resurrection power, that God works into us as he changes us and makes us more like Jesus. In other places, Paul speaks of God's powers coming from the Spirit or from God. And when the Spirit unites us with Christ Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, he gives us access to the resurrection power of Christ When we come to know Christ, He gives us this power over sin, death, hell, Satan, and the grave to live in this sin-shattered, Jesus-rejecting world like Jesus. Paul wants us to understand that if we're in Christ, we're going to live the life of the future right now. Let me say that again. If we're in Christ... We're going to live the life of the future right now. One day we will be bodily raised, but we've already been spiritually raised in Christ, and we're supposed to live with that perspective. There's no future in returning to our old ways of thinking. I'm so concerned about the person who says they trusted in Christ, and, and it's all about what Jesus has done, and then they end up running right back to make it all about them. No, no, no. I've got resurrection power living on the inside. The, the way to eternity with Christ is going to be difficult. It's not going to be about me. It's going to be about Him, and I'm going to need His power to navigate that path. It's the narrow path, the difficult path, but it is the path that is infused with resurrection power. The challenge today is that we want resurrection power, but we don't want any real problems. If I come to Jesus, then my kid's never going to throw up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. If I come to Jesus, then my kid's not even going to get hungry. My, my little baby is going to sleep through the night. The, the moment they come out of the mother's womb, they're just everything's going to be perfect. They're never going to have any issues. They're never going to talk back. I'm always going to get promoted at work. I'm never going to have uh, something that I have to address in my life. I came to Jesus. God sees me in Jesus, so my life's perfect now. Wrong. There's all kinds of issues you've got to face, but the reason people aren't experiencing the power of Christ in their lives is they, they were sold a bill of goods that if you come to Jesus, then everything's going to be perfect right now. It'll be perfect one day, but you demonstrate the power of God in your life as you persist through adversity. There's a mom here that needed to hear that. I don't know who it is, but she's about ready to pull her hair out because her baby won't go to sleep. Resurrection power is in perseverance. Leonard Ravenhill said this, Everyone wants to be clothed with power, but no one wants to be stripped of self. God is getting us out of the way and making us ever more dependent on Christ. Fee adds this, Any genuine knowing of Christ means participating in His sufferings. It is through suffering that the significance of Christ's suffering is shown to the world. Have you ever thought about that? When we face adversity, suffering, and hardship for following Jesus, we don't bail on obedience, we don't cave to culture, we don't fret that life isn't fair, or pout about our preferences not being catered to. Instead, we participate in what God is doing now, and that is when we know Christ's resurrection power in our life. That's when the world, even if they reject us and reject Jesus, they're going to know we have something they don't. And while no one likes to suffer, Paul saw his sufferings as confirmation of his relationship with Christ Jesus. Christians don't walk away when life gets difficult like it's a surprise. Oh, that was disappointing. That was a shocker. We know there's going to be difficulty. We see sufferings and inconveniences and setbacks and spiritual disappointments as opportunities to know Christ more, to live in His strength and His power, to stay faithful and obedient like Jesus did, even to the point of death. Do you see how verse 10 concludes? I want to know Christ. And what does knowing Christ mean? It means knowing Christ. The power of His resurrection and sharing in His sufferings. You can't know Jesus now unless you are infused with His power for suffering for what purpose? Do you see it at the verse, end of verse 10? Becoming like Him. And if I asked you at the door, if I stood at the double doors when everybody walked in and I said, What is sanctification? You'd probably say it's becoming more like Jesus. And you'd be right. But we leave off that last little part of what sanctification is. Sanctification isn't just becoming like Jesus, it's becoming like Jesus in what? Do you see it? In his what? In his death. Sanctification in this life is becoming like Jesus in his life. And what did he do in his life? He went to the cross for the glory of God and the good of others. You want to be sanctified? You're going to live for the glory of God and the good of others, no matter the cost. In his death, Jesus did not ask for fairness. Aren't you glad? I love it when my daughter's like, well, usually my daughter. If you're in here, Elizabeth, I love you. um, Well, Dad, that's not fair. And I'm like, well, aren't you glad the gospel's not fair? If God gave you fair, where would you be? Fairness is not a value inherent to the gospel. If we want fair, we'll all be dead. Jesus didn't go to the cross asking for, for for fairness. Jesus wasn't complaining on the way to the cross. Did you know Jesus didn't even ask for a committee or for a vote on his way to the cross? He said, "Father, not your will, but my not my will, but yours be done." This is what it looks like. To be conformed to Christ in his death. He went to the cross for the glory of God and the good of others. To know Christ in the here and now. We've got to stop playing games. And we've got to experience his power in the face of adversity and hardship and inconvenience and suffering. And they will come. And if you bail when they come, you probably don't know Christ. Every time that it's hard to follow Jesus in obedience to his word is an opportunity to become like Jesus in his death. It's an opportunity to give ourselves over to God for the glory of God and the good of His church. The goal of the Christian in the present is to know Jesus now, and to know Him now, we've got to become like Him in His death. How is the Lord calling you to die today? You say, well, that doesn't sound fun. I'm telling you that every step deeper into the heart of God and the knowledge of Christ takes a sort of dying there is no knowledge of Christ without death and self-denial. We must crucify the flesh, its lusts and its pride. And it is in this self-denying, others' blessing dying, that God will graciously give you His power to take the next step and make you more like Jesus every step of the way. That is the Christian life. And if no one's ever explained it to you that way, honestly, I'm sorry. If you heard, come to Jesus, and everything's going to be great, and you're going to get a a Maserati and a Ferrari, and you're going to be the president of a corporation, you'll do whatever you want to do in your life, I'm very sorry they said that to you because you can't find that in the Bible. What you can find in the Bible is a Savior who stands in your place. And if you believe in Him, God unites you with Him, and He gives you a power like His to live for the glory of God and to bless other people until He comes again. You say, well, that sounds pretty... Interesting, pretty hard. It's not always easy, but God is with you every step of the way. He gives you joy in the journey. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him because he was going to magnify God and other people were going to be rescued because of his sacrifice. And he also knew that three days later God was going to raise him from the grave. And look at what Paul says in verse 11. How do we joyfully participate in the sufferings of our Savior? Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I I know Christ because of what He did for me in the past. I can know Him right now by living in the power of His resurrection, even in the face of suffering. And yes, it might be hard, but I do this because there's resurrection on the other side. I know Christ now in part, but one day face to face. And so if we're going to know Christ, not only do we have to have the right perspective on who we are and what we've done, not only do we have to believe that our right standing before God is through Christ and Christ alone, not only do we have to live for Him in the present in the power of His resurrection in the midst of sufferings, finally and joyfully, beloved, we must anticipate our glorious future of knowing Christ in our resurrected bodies. Why did God give you eyes? One day to behold Christ. Why did God give you a mouth? One day to declare the praises of Christ, to say worthy is the Lamb. Why did He give you ears so that you could hear the praises of God's people? These bodies are not incidental to the Christian life. They are wrapped up in the Christian life. This version of Christianity that wants to lose the body and just escape and fly away in the clouds somewhere is a misnomer. The hope of the Christian throughout the New Testament is not just to die. It's to die and to be raised to everlasting life. I want to be sure that we see the connection between verse 10 and verse 11. And I promise I'm almost done. Paul wants us to become like Jesus in his death so that, do you see it, the purpose, verse 11? So that he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Don't don't miss that. Please don't miss that. There's a version of Christianity that says, believe in Jesus, God will see you in Jesus, and then ignore Jesus the rest of your life, and you'll be raised from the dead. That's not in the Bible. Those who've really believed in Jesus want to live like Jesus, becoming conformed to Him in His death. Why? So that they may attain to the resurrection of the dead. It is those who die to self in this life who can expect to enjoy resurrection in the life to come. Someone who says they have faith in Christ but no desire to die to sin and self has no reason to be assured of the resurrection to everlasting life. Resurrection to life eternal comes to those who spend their lives now dying for the glory of Christ, repenting when they're wrong, forgiving when they're wronged, enduring when they're disappointed, participating with joy even when you would have done it differently, learning to treasure Jesus with your treasures, asking for help to overcome that private sin. Those who are going to be raised to life everlasting are those who are right now becoming like Jesus in his death, giving themselves, emptying themselves, denying themselves for the glory of God and the good of others. The aim of the Christian is not retirement, but the resurrection. The aim of the Christian is not temporary pleasures, but beholding the person of Christ. The aim of the Christian is not a bunch of hours with your grandkids. As fun as that is, the aim of the Christian is the pursuit of godliness such that your grandkids might follow after Christ like you do. When Paul says, by any means possible, in verse 11, he is not expressing doubt that he's going to be raised from the dead. Rather, he's being modest. And he's also perhaps expressing a a question about well, am I going to die physically and then be raised? Or is Jesus just going to come on back and transform my body into a resurrection body without having to die? By the way, that's my preference. If Jesus wants to come on back and change me and give me a resurrection body, hallelujah. But either way, Paul's aim is to know Christ in full. He wants to know Him face to face in the resurrection. And beloved, that hope is, is on reserve for anyone who knows Christ by faith. John the Apostle in 1 John 3, 2 says, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we're going to be like Him, because we'll see Him like He is. So in closing, I ask you this, beloved. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you have the righteousness of God through faith in the finished work of Christ? Are you seeking to become like Jesus in His death, striving in the power of His resurrection in the face of adversity and suffering? And are you living in anticipation of having a resurrected body to praise Him forevermore? When God raises your lowly body, you will put on incorruption and never die or sin again. You will always be with the Lord Jesus face to face if you know Christ. And so in closing, I ask you again, do you know Christ Jesus? Nothing less will do. As our worship team comes, would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven. We thank you that right standing before God is ours in Christ. We thank you that resurrection power to live as Jesus lived, giving himself for the glory of God and the good of others is ours through faith in Christ. And God, we thank you that resurrection awaits. Beholding our Savior awaits all who know Christ. And God, this, this morning, I, I know in a room this size that there are some who, in hearing this message, say, I know about Christ, but I don't yet know Him as my Lord. And so I ask that as we stand and sing in just a moment, that you would grant liberty to anyone who knows about Jesus, but does not yet know Jesus, God, to believe on Christ, to be saved and redeemed and to be found in Him. King Jesus, have your will, have your way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.